episode 459 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and expressing views that do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our families, our pets, maybe not even ours, three weeks from today. Today's episode will also feature, in addition to a news roundup, part two of our interview with Paul Stephen on his book, The World Crisis and International Law. Joining me for the News Roundup portion of the podcast are Jeffrey Atik, who teaches law at Loyola Law School and is the co-principal investigator in the Quantum Law Research Project at Lund University. And he's joined by Richard Steenen, who's the executive editor of Security Current and founder of the cybersecurity industry analysis firm, IT Harvest. And finally, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. So as we have for the last couple of months, we might as well lead off with artificial intelligence and the rush of the big AI firms, the companies that have put the most money and effort into AI, who are all falling all over each other to say how much they want to be regulated and to lay out their visions for how AI could be regulated. Jeffrey, Brad Smith had a pretty detailed set of thoughts about AI governance, maybe the most detailed of all the people who've talked about this. What did you think? Well, I, you know, I, so there is this sudden rush to governance, which is, as you say, Stuart, really quite striking, given the history of the field. And it makes you have to wonder, well, what are the motivations for the various players? And, you know, we can talk about general motivations. Are Is industry looking for regulation because they fear the wrath of the public? Is industry looking for regulation because they fear each other? And then with respect to Microsoft, Brad Smith, you know, what is Microsoft's stakes? How does it, you know, welcome a form of regulation that would best advantage it? perhaps at the cost of some of its competitors. So one has to read Smith's proposals with a bit of a skeptical eye, but, you know, clearly it is welcoming of regulation. Like all of the regulatory explorations that we encounter these days, it's long on concept and limited on detail. But, you know, the focus on critical infrastructure, which by putting most of the regulatory attention there leaves wide open perhaps other spaces that would remain either unregulated or less intensely regulated. He does make some transparency proposals. He welcomes access to review by academic institutions and other third parties, which might, again, affect some of the competitors who have been much more tight-fisted with respect to their innovation efforts. But again, in recent days or recent years, Microsoft has been relatively quiet in as far as, as being a target of regulatory scrutiny. The Googles and the Metas are much more exposed, and one imagines that's a situation that does not displease. Yeah, I clearly, since he came in in 2001 with a single slide pitch to the management of Microsoft saying it's time to make peace, he has made peace mostly with Washington and Brussels and also managed to turn peace into a weapon because he said, so I'm the good guy. I'm telling you that I'm not going to break any of the rules that you think apply. And you ought to take a look at Google and their privacy policies. And he 
turn that into a big and serious problem for Google. So he is very adept at getting inside the heads of regulators and legislators. And so, yes, of course, you need to review what he says for a a certain amount of casting shade on others. But I think it's also true. He's smart enough to see that there's really almost nobody who wants to buy into the 90s view that just letting the tech go where it will is going to be great because even the people who are building this tech see some problems and some risks. Richard, did you see anything uniquely Microsoft benefiting in his proposals? Well, of course, when Microsoft easily has a dominant position thanks to their partnership, maybe ownership of OpenAI. So it always pays for the winner to call for regulation because it keeps the startups from getting into it or the late comers to immediately do it because they now have an extra cost on top of everything else. So it's yeah. it's just that, that ladder I used to, that ladder I used to climb up here doesn't look so safe anymore. That's right. <laughs> Somebody regulate this so nobody else does what I just did. But on top of that, you know, there's a little bit of frustration, I think, because we can't figure out what needs to be regulated. So everybody's thrashing around. The EU in particular is doing just plain stupid stuff. And we don't know, you know, what are you going to do? Regulate ChatGPT. Okay, we kind of understand the dangers of ChatGPT and we can create a regulation that means you got to trademark anything written by it or something. You know, we can do something like that, but that's irrelevant. ChatGPT is a little blip in history. It's what's going to happen next year, and we don't know. Not even the creators of these things know what's going to happen and what needs to be regulated. So, Yeah, don't you think that's the problem is that saying it's easy to say we're all for regulation. It's much harder to say what it ought to do. Smith says, well, AI should be valid, reliable, safe, secure, resilient, accountable, transparent, explainable, interpretable, you know, and, you know, I should have a private plane. It's just not clear how you're going to get to those things. And it is definitely not clear how regulation is going to get you there. Okay. So, By that standard, what did you think of Sundar Pichai's effort to get into the We Love Regulation 2 effort? What he said was, actually, he said, let me tell you what we're doing about responsibility in AI. We're boldly incorporating it. We're encouraging startups in Europe, especially, just in case Brussels wasn't paying attention. And we're all for responsible deployment so that we... When we came up with something that enabled lip syncing, we only allowed authorized users to use it, and we're watermarking our products. These sound like sort of small ball changes. And then he says, oh, and yeah, we're all for regulation without any real detail. So I, I kind of felt like he was playing catch up in the We Love Regulation contest and had not spent as much time building a plausible set of principles the way Brad Smith had. Yeah, I think that's that, that's absolutely right. I mean, his the tone of his remarks are much more defensive than than were Smith's. And speaking for Google, you know, Google has enormous vulnerabilities, particularly in Europe. And his remarks have a much more international cast to them than did Smith speaking for Microsoft. 
you know, whenever somebody welcomes common standards at the international level, you know, that often is a plea for lower standards that, you know, lower Delaware standards as opposed to what might be the more biting EU standards that Google is facing. Google's European problems aren't simply AI regulation. They have a long history of difficult competition law problems there as well. And so what was particularly interesting about his statement was his his call for maintenance of competitive, which again at this point seems a little a little passe and a little almost nostalgic for a relatively deregulated space. Google has started getting competitive here. They rolled out what they call the search generative experience. Richard, did you actually get to play with that? There were some things there that I thought were really interesting and maybe helpful if you're doing a search. No, I I did not get to play with it primarily because I would never use a Google product for things like that. Just as I Try and avoid all Google products, right? Because everything <laughs> you give them, they use, right? And if you Google something for man portable weapons of mass destruction or nuclear weapons, you're going to get ads targeted at that <laughs> from here on okay. out. <laughs> So what's interesting about the AI stuff, though, is they give you, I mean, their theory is if you want something where it's a research project rather than just looking up a fact. So if you want to know where should I go when I go to Scotland, they'll give you an itinerary. But the part I liked was you can actually click on a little button and it will tell you where all the sentences come from so that you can almost fact check the AI, which if that really works as it is advertised, is a step toward explainability, it seems to me, and transparency. Yeah, and a step towards you know fixing a, the massive harm that Google has done to the entire web by encouraging SEO. So when you do a Google search, you know the first twenty results are just made up garbage by content writers. Yeah, um, and okay, let's get around that. I mean, that's Google's big threat here from chat gpt is people start using it to get good stuff if that's the case you know i it, it, there are a limited number of big public databases that you can use to train your model on and seo is a powerful profit incentive for people to go into those databases and just flood them with garbage that yep. nobody has to read nobody does read except the model that you send to train right uh, yep. and, and so i i do think that if you don't like seo generated search results you're really going to hate ai results in the next five years Luckily, so far, they haven't been trained on the, you know, tampered with databases, right? They're all old stuff. And if you're using all of Gutenberg, you know, which is every book and Google has access through Google Scholar to a lot more books that they've personally scanned, you're going to get some pretty good stuff until people start poisoning the books. Because the learning models are based a lot on published books and magazines and archives, it'll be a long time before those are poisoned, right? People have to generate poison books and get them into the next version. So for now, certainly the models have some really good, uh, you know, incorporated knowledge of the human race. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Although first published books are already being poisoned with bad published books because publication is no longer much of a barrier to people getting into the world's 
body of knowledge. And in any event, there's just not enough data in books to train a large language model. So I do think we may be seeing the golden age of AI large language model reliability, which ain't that good. Well, Jeffrey, let me ask you about this. The poisoned answer that was given to a lawyer when he asked ChatGPT to write a brief for him is kind of an astonishing story. It's an absolutely great story. It's a story that, you know, brings a lot of smiles to one's face. But it's a nice story because it demonstrates the point that you were just making. We can't trust the tool, even when it gives us the sources, because as ChatGPT did in that, when challenged to give its sources, it said, well, my sources are these cases. Moreover, you can find them on Westlaw and Lexis, which for most lawyers is the end of conversation as far as doing the necessary due diligence about the authenticity of legal of legal cases. For those who hadn't seen this story, a plaintiff's lawyer put in a brief arguing to bypass a statute of limitations, a list of cases where the statute had been avoided in an aviation lawsuit. The problem was he asked ChatGPT, and ChatGPT, the loyal tool, gave him what he wanted. On-point cases uh, supporting his client's position. The problem, as both counsel on the other side and the judge intuited, it was all made up by ChatGPT. And the lawyer didn't have the good sense to, to check any of ChatGPT's work. I mean, it's a nice example of having the wrong expectation of the tool. He obviously thought chat GPT was more reliable than it was, and he misunderstood what chat GPT was doing. He thought, like traditional tools, it was searching legal databases, when in fact, it was just hallucinating language that resembled a, a lawyer's brief. It fooled him, but again, did not fool the other party or the judge, which you know may well lead to uh, sanctions and other kinds of you know, yeah. Ending. It's it really is astonishing how first how persuasive the the brief was in the sense and the fraud was because it had quotes and then when challenged actually produced the text of the opinion. And so, if you were dealing with a human being, you'd say, okay, I guess that's the answer. I have to say, I think there's more to this story because the lawyer had been told by the court that it needed to see copies of the opinions that he was relying on. And the lawyer went back to ChatGPT and got eight cases and submitted them to the judge. You know, you kind of say when somebody challenges you like that, you really just go back to the tool that's under challenge and ask for it. It's almost like, well, I question whether he was really as fooled as he claimed to be. And especially because he also said, oh, look, I even asked ChatGPT, is this a real case? What is your source? Are the other cases you provided fake? You know, you don't ask that question unless you've got a pretty strong suspicion that the cases are fake. And he apparently either didn't look them up or wanted to keep pushing this idea until you know all the wheels came off. So I suspect there'll be more to come in the investigation of this submission. But it, it does raise this issue as to whether we can trust search engines 
as to their authentication of sources. If that is the industry's solution to our doubts about what is true, you know, it says, well, simply because, you know, Bing comes back and says, yes, here are your sites. That may not yeah, I, I think that's right. Although there, you know, there there was a proceedings of the National Academy of Science article that just came out mm-hmm. that suggested explainability is not quite as impossible as people have thought, and it offered some hope that you could actually produce explanations of how particular results were received. I think this was one where they were where the machine was being asked to explain why it was finding tumors, why it was claiming that there were tumors in a particular set of radiology slides. And it put up samples of what it thought were the most compelling reasons or the reasons why it had chosen the the slides. And I, you know, that may not be perfect, but it suggests that the idea that this is completely a black box and you just cannot uh, get explainability out of AI might be a more an early return than a final answer. Yeah, when you look at that, I remember watching the some of the games between AlphaZero and Stockfish. So Stockfish, of course, was the traditional machine learning chess program that basically they fed it every single game ever played, and it you know did the mathematical vectorization of that and came up with the best move for the next move always. But then along comes AlphaZero, and they just said, "No, you go and play you know six million games against yourself and use that to train yourself." And AlphaZero just won flat out. And yeah. as you watch these games, you go, "Okay, why did it make that move?" So I asked my son, who happened to work at OpenAI, "Can we watch what's going on inside AlphaZero as it makes that decision?" And he said, "No." You can't. It's just a vector mapping. And as soon as the first move is made, it maps it onto this other huge thing that has 1,500 dimensions, so you can't even imagine it, and gives you the answer, and it's done. And you can't figure out any thinking that's going on at all. It's just math. Yeah, but I'm not not sure that's the last word. Definitely not. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. And you know, especially when the large language models that started this all off, ChatGPT, et cetera, it's not AlphaZero, it's not Stockfish, it is just natural language processing. And it's given us this interface so we can ask it questions and how'd you come up with that? And, you know, it's still starting from ground zero, kind of. It's still interpreting what you ask, giving you an answer. But it doesn't really know what it's doing internally. Yeah. And, you know, the companies themselves do not believe they have found an answer to the question of how to ensure accurate results. There's a funny story in the New York Times about how Google's photo app, which like almost 10 years ago, it was labeling all the animals and all the pictures it saw. It mislabeled a couple of black kids' photos as gorillas. And the howls of protest about that were, you know, understandably very loud. And even today, when you ask Google's photo app to categorize photos of gorillas, it simply refuses to do it because Google and Apple as well don't have confidence in the complete accuracy of their AI engines. And, you know, talk about existential risk. Doing that again is existential risk for Google and for Apple. They're just not going to do it. 
until they know that the that accuracy is guaranteed, and they don't believe that their AI engines will do that. All right. The fight between the U.S. and China over decoupling has taken a new turn with China stepping forward to say they think micron chips, memory chips, are not really safe for their critical infrastructure industries to be using. And they've told those industries not to rely on micron memory chips. That's been characterized as a ban. I'm not sure that really constitutes a ban, except as to certain industries. But the reaction from the U.S. has been aggressive, saying, you know, we're not going to tolerate this. And it does suggest that China's looking for tools to respond to the very aggressive steps the U.S. has taken in cutting off the use of a variety of Chinese chips. Jeffrey, where do you think this is all going? Well, the Chinese move with respect to Micron was pretty mild tit for a, a huge tat that the United States launched with the, uh, with the chip export control and other controls a month or so ago. But it, it certainly signals that you know, China isn't going to take the U.S. measures sitting down. There's obviously great skepticism about whether there is any grounds for the Chinese measure, any authentic national security grounds for the Chinese measure. But as you point out, Stuart, it really doesn't even hurt Micron that much because most of its chip exports to China are for consumer electronic products and for the moment are not affected by a Chinese measure. It's simply prohibits the incorporation of Micron's memory chips into critical information infrastructure, yep. which you know, sounds like quite similar to the Huawei ban the United States had earlier. So it may not be such a big deal, other than the first move suggests that there could be further escalation. And by, by doing something fairly measured in the first instance, it suddenly makes makes clear to both the United States government and U.S. industry, and here you're thinking about the giants, the Qualcomms, the Intels, the Broadcoms, who are very dependent on the Chinese market, that, you know, this shouldn't be taken for granted. As you say, Stuart, this is part of the messiness of decoupling, and it shows, you know, China's acknowledgement that decoupling is in course. Coupled to the limits on Micron are entreaties to the Korean firm Samsung and Hynix to come into the Chinese market. And again, that puts a bit of a tug of war on Korea between the Americans and the Chinese. And again, puts more uncertainty in the U.S. players as to their prospects. Uh, yeah, uh, but don't, again, you know, I agree with you. I thought this was a pretty modest step, and if it was meant to send a signal to the U.S., it probably sends the signal that China's bag of retaliatory tats are pretty limited right now. In the long run, they'll obviously develop a whole lot more. They're going to try to develop their memory industry until they don't need to rely at all on the West, and then they're going to start trying to sell those chips around the world until the U.S. starts to feel isolated. I thought it was interesting that NVIDIA's CEO is probably the only CEO I have seen who's actually said, hey, you know, this chip war 
could be really bad for the tech industry. And of course, NVIDIA is the big winner from AI. It provides the raw material for most of these large language models and, and their stock has gone through the roof. My sense is they may be more exposed in the long run to this fight, not because they stand to lose sales today, but because they are clearly the company, even more than Intel, that China wants to create a, as a national champion. And so uh, they're going to be guaranteed to get government-subsidized competition from China over the next 10 years. Yeah, I think that's spot on what you just said. I share that analysis. NVIDIA was the major target of the U.S.-imposed export controls. It's obviously doing very well uh, commercially, given other things that are going on in other markets. But yes, it has to fear the eventual domestication by China in this sector because, you know, China remains interested in projecting itself throughout the world in, in this field. And this is the scenario that was dreaded that this might backfire on the United States and create a whole host of Chinese competitors down. Uh, so the downstream. Biden administration is trying to make that less likely with this Indo-Pacific trade deal, which is not a free trade deal as far as I can see, and certainly not according to the industry groups that usually support free trade deals. It's more about security in the supply chain, essentially trying to get Indonesia and Southeast Asia and India to step up and replace China in the IT supply chain. I haven't seen the details, but it's potentially a complete switch in the kinds of trade deals that the U.S. decides to negotiate. Yeah, this is not your father's Oldsmobile of trade deals. It's interesting how thorough the repudiation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership is. This was the never implemented by the United States predecessor agreement for the region that was supposed to address Chinese influence, which again was ultimately was promoted by the United States, but ultimately rejected by the United States across several administrations. This new development demonstrates that there's no interest in the current administration from reviving these kinds of past approaches where you had broad linkages across all kinds of U.S. concerns, intellectual property, uh, for example, rather one that would focus probably with a kind of harder security motivation. What One wonders what's behind the terms of it. What are the tools that are going to motivate our partners in any such initiative to, to cooperate? How will the United States extend its influence to get the kind of supply chain assurances, both for U.S. purposes, but presumably also for purposes. Yeah, of- my guess is, and I haven't read it, so I'm guessing that it's more of an empty vessel than a actually well thought through, finely coordinated set of tools. But it is a step in the direction of a different way of dealing with trade and a step in the direction, frankly, of trying to isolate China in terms of its IT uh, to say to China, oh, you want to have an autarkic system for IT infrastructure? 
go right ahead. We're going to see if we can't exclude you from the advances in that area and force you to build your own IT sector. It's got to be a bad message, uh, although you kind of wonder whether some of the folks who joined this actually have that intent, but they're certainly flirting with the idea. Okay. There was one other thing that I just thought was in terms of the global South and China and its IT that I just thought was really interesting. It was a story in which several cybersecurity companies and some intelligence analysts said that Chinese hackers really went hammer and tongs after the Kenyan government, breaking into you know all kinds of government agencies to to conduct cyber espionage. About four years ago, as the the pandemic struck and Kenya started to wobble on servicing its enormous Chinese debt for the Belt and Road Initiative infrastructure that had been built in Kenya. And China is turning out to be much tougher than the West has been about collecting on the debts that it has passed out in the third world, including basically trying to break into systems to find out what the debtor is thinking about doing with respect to that debt. I can't help thinking that this is part of a process in which China, after having handed out a bunch of money, starts making itself deeply unpopular among the debtor countries. Yeah, as we all know, loaning money to a friend is always the worst move you can make, right? Because they won't be your friend. And that's why it's complicated when it's a family member, too. Nobody likes stow money to anybody. And I really like the coverage and the, how, you know, some of the researchers have called this backdoor diplomacy is the name of the APT. And it follows pretty standard playbooks for China and any intelligence agency. They use any means they can, but they have their own tool sets of backdoors that they can deploy. But in this case, the researchers at ESET said they they got in with a malicious PDF file, you know, so just pure spear phishing to get a foothold and then work the way through all the agencies, which no surprise, right? They haven't, they don't have the 20 years experience trying to battle China as we have starting back with Titan rain to under, and they haven't had their, you know, their wake up call. Maybe this is it that we did with the complete ownership of the entire defense industrial base, including Lockheed and stealing all of our weapon systems, design data, and of course, producing their own weapon systems that look very similar to ours. It's that reactive, you know, grow from what you've experienced that's going to happen. And unfortunately, Kenya can't really afford to invest as much in cybersecurity as the U.S. has. Well, maybe they can take the cost of improving their cybersecurity out of what they would otherwise have been using to pay back their debt to China. Uh, that's the kind of, exactly. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that happens uh, sooner or later once you get a, a critical mass of people who really resent their debt. So we'll see. You know, China has some formidable strengths, but it's got 50 years of learning in the school of hard knocks that the U.S. has been in about what you can actually expect from people you think of as allies or friends or dependents. All right, last topic, speaking of dependents, the European Union has 
fined. Actually, Ireland has fined, but only under protest and only under instructions from the European Union data protection group of regulators, has fined Meta 1.3 billion or 1.2 billion euros, 1.3 billion dollars, and told them that they can't export data to the United States as of October. Richard Jeffrey, I guess we've been expecting this, and so has the U.S. That's why they've been negotiating the privacy framework that they have now proposed in Brussels. And my guess is this is bad news, but it really is just setting a deadline for getting that next agreement in place and going back to court. That's right. That's exactly what I see going on here, though, you know, they've warned us over and over. GDPR itself says that data has to be the providence of the data has to stay in Europe. It's from a technologist standpoint, you kind of scratch your head. So, you know, it's just it's actually easier for the NSA to reach out to a European data center and mine that data than it would be for them to do that here in the United States. Of course, it makes it easier for each national government in Europe to mine the data as well with their own personal relationships and agreements with technology providers. So it it's a it's always been strange to me how, you know, in the early days of the internet, it was like this is a different space, cyberspace, right? Laws don't pertain, etc. And the way that regulators and lawmakers get their grips around cyberspace is to reimposed geographical Westphalian norms to it, right? If it's sitting on this location, then it must comply with those laws. If it's moving, let's have a regulation that says it has to stay in a certain region. It seems strange to somebody. It's like the difference is 30 or 40 milliseconds. You know, it doesn't make a difference to a technologist where the data sits. Well, that's why they have to say you can't leave. Yes. Yeah, it is. And, you know, Jeffrey, do you think that the the latest framework will survive review in Europe. I think there's a there's an argument to be made that it should, but I can find little bits and pieces in the European Court of Justice opinion that haven't really been satisfied by the latest deal. Yeah, if you read the two Schrems cases, Schrems 1 and Schrems 2, it doesn't look like in the court's view that there's any hope of a bilateral that's going to solve the problem. So it's a real kind of between a rock and a hard place for both the U.S. and EU negotiators. There will be, I'm sure, a a timely agreement given the effective deadline that this current development poses. But uh, I promise you it'll be back before the European Court of Justice, and there's no guarantees that the latest iteration will survive the very stringent constitutional demands. And the climate in Europe just gets worse and worse for for support for any kind of effective data sharing. You know, we have, and the Europeans have, soured on social media, and suddenly the prospect of a Europe without Facebook doesn't seem nearly as dire as it might have seemed, you know, four or five years ago. So the bluster that we're getting out of Facebook is they may get called on it in an unfortunate unfortunate But they're just the beginning. Google would also be unable to move data around in ways that it needs to. And frankly, there are plenty of European companies that move data to the U.S. to process it and then move it back. And they're all going to be at risk. And yeah, if you build enough data centers in Europe, you could probably accommodate that change. But, you know, a data center in Europe is a data center in three or four time zones, which is not the way people want to run data centers these days. 
it also raises questions of regulatory architecture. As you point out, when GDPR was passed, having national authorities seemed like a good idea. That's not the approach for AI. And it may not even be a Brussels-Washington duopoly for AI, because now people are saying, no, AI has got to have something like the the International Atomic Agency, you know, has to be something supranational to really be. To really be I think supranational organizations making international law for reasons that we're going to hear about in a second. That's just a hopeless sale. And there is no duopoly in AI. There's a monopoly in AI, and it's the U.S. EU is nowhere on AI. And the more it says, well, we can regulate anything that happens in inside Europe, the more likely it is that stuff will just happen in Europe last. I think that the effort to regulate AI, despite all the kind of sweet talk that they're getting and from industry, is going to mean that people say, yes, you're right. Before we introduce this in Europe, we want to make sure it's really secure and repeatable and working. And so all the good things that your other industries can get from AI, they're going to have to come to the US to get it because we're not allowed to sell it in Europe. This could really turn out to be a disaster for the European Union. I And I have a feeling they sort of see that happening. There, there's some indication that this effort to impose the, the fine and the deadline was deeply divisive within the EU between the old stalwarts of the EU, France and Germany, and a lot of the people on the periphery from Ireland to Poland. And this is going to really be divisive. What's troubling is that the court has said, oh, this is just a matter of Europe's constitution. Our constitution requires us to impose these requirements. And so if you want to play with that principle, you're going to have to amend the Constitution or at least change GDPR. They've really upped the stakes in ways that make it really embarrassing for the EU to compromise on this. One other thing that's probably worth saying about this fight with the EU is that Max Schrems, who Jeffrey mentioned, is the mover in the two big lawsuits that have been so painful for the United States and for U.S. industry. Max Schrems is going to be appearing on a one-hour webinar podcast event with me, and we're going to do that as a bonus episode of the Cyber Law Podcast. But also, if you want to hear it live, it'll be a teleforum. Look it up on Google. It's the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project broadcasting June 15, which is very soon, within two weeks, at 11 a.m. Washington time. It should be a lot of fun because there's nobody more Euroskeptic than I am. And Max Schrems is about as U.S. skeptical as you can get and an enthusiast for cutting off trade across the Atlantic in data. So that should be a lot of fun. And I'll try to put the, the link to the event in our show notes. And now with that, let's turn to our interview with Paul Stephen about the global crisis and the effect on international law. This is part two of the interview. Why don't we talk a little bit about what you think the knowledge economy is going to be demanding as a matter of 
political outcomes. We've talked a little bit about this. Anti-discrimination, I think at least meritocracy, the notion that people should be judged by what they know and what they can do, not by some other characteristic. And that has swept the West. You think that free immigration is part of what the knowledge economy wants. And I think that's right as to people that we would say are at the top of the meritocracy. Facebook wants all of the smartest engineers working for it, and it would prefer to have them in Silicon Valley if it could get them there. And so it wants much liberalized immigration for its engineers. But that's not where the immigration fights are occurring. The immigration fights are occurring over mass movements of very poor people who want to live in the West, whether it's Europe or now the US. That's the kind of immigration that has become quite controversial. There's no political consensus about stopping that the way there was 15 or 20 years ago. So why do you think that the knowledge economy is driving a dispute over low-wage immigration? Yeah, so I my book distinguishes between high human capital and low human capital immigration and you know the case from the knowledge economy's perspective for high human capital immigration is i think obvious with low human capital what i think it is a sense that an influx of low human capital workers particularly if their status is legally problematic and therefore their bargaining power is weak permits the specialization of knowledge workers that if you can get at below market cost people who clean your houses and serve your food and take care of your kids and do all the other things that distract from working 16 hours a day you like it and the assumption from that class is enough of the people seeking to get in will fall into that category. All the better if we don't legalize them. The book talks about precedents in Russia and China where you have legal illegal workers, if you will. We you have I, a form I of love indentured that servitude. Now, I love that observation, which is that Russia, China, and the U.S. have all figured out a way to have a kind of underclass of people who are tolerated as long as they keep their nose clean and who have to work for very low wages because they don't have the authority to be where they are. So China and Russia both have these essentially internal immigration rules that say you can't live in urban areas without a special pass, and they don't give them out to everybody. And the U.S. has reinvented that with illegal immigrants. Yeah. So I, I think if you look at it now from the other side, the you know, the children of the people who were in labor that you grew up with, you know, I think there's both a supply side and a demand side effect. I think the immigration affects the demand side because they're competing with people who are willing to work for far less and think they're much better off for doing that. And there also is, I think, as the knowledge class increases, there is an impulse to regulate more. So it's harder for people who don't have a lot of formal education, but may have some other skills, whether it's hair braiding or automobile repair, or, you know, you now need a license to do that. And many jobs, you need a college degree, even though the college degree has no relevance to the job, it's just a credential that's become standardized. So I think both these things are cutting down on the life opportunities of people who haven't had the great chances in life that you and I have. And it's, in fact, it's a kind of unattractive 
byproduct of the meritocracy ideology, which is, well, of course, people should be educated for the jobs they do, and they should show that they can do it. They should go through a process that is easy if you're part of the knowledge economy. You say, of course, you know, I learn something every day, and I'm happy to get credentials. And so people just don't even think, am I harming somebody who might be a perfectly good hair braider, but who is going to have trouble with the the academics or the other requirements that we impose on fields that we put licensing in effect for. Uh, we just don't even think about it. We just say, yeah, sure, that's table stakes. Uh, let's impose that and make everybody a little bit better. So you're right. It forecloses a lot of opportunities and has made the country you know, a lot less free in ways that matter to a lot of people. And I would add, you know, it's not just us. It's not just us in the UK. We can see variations of this really all around the world. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about how people respond to that, especially the people who don't prosper in a knowledge economy system for whatever reason. You've said that they, and I think it's pretty obvious, all the Democrats who thought the people who felt that way would be a natural left-wing constituency have been proved wrong. They've turned out to be a much more natural right-wing constituency, except for at least Black Americans. And so populism rather than socialism is the ideology of choice for people who've been disadvantaged by these changes. How come and what kind of populism are we talking about? Well, I think populism really is what Eric Erickson would call a negative identity. You know, mm -hmm. it's anti-elite. And because the elite do not identify as being of the people, we will identify as their opposite. I think nationalism is based partly on, on a, a romantic invention of the past, you know, when we were one nation, proud and strong. And we see this all around the world. I mean, when you look at fighting issues, I mean, often what pops up are anti-immigration. You know, I think that really runs through a lot of American politics and even more in Europe. Uh, we're seeing the rise of the far right and they're now in government in most of the Nordic states. When I wrote the book, I wasn't at all sure that Macron would win his election. And we did see in Italy a far right anti-immigrant coalition come to power. I think we're going to see more of that. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to argue that there is still a difference between the US and and actually most of the English speaking countries and the rest of Europe. I think that most of the rest of Europe, put aside France, certainly Scandinavia, had not a clue what it would mean to integrate their societies. They were just as white bread as you could find. And they thought that, you know, they used to give us lectures in the 50s about the importance of racial integration in the United States because they had no idea what it would mean to have people who were different than them in their values and their family structure and their behavior living cheek by jowl. And now they've all discovered it. They've all taken in large immigrant populations, often refugee populations. Those people have turned out to be different in ways that are deeply disconcerting to Scandinavian populations. But it's also true in Poland, which was very uniform. And so the whole idea of immigration is put at risk when you inject a large population like that into a very uniform society. I think in the US, it's, you know, there's a lot less uniformity. And that in fact, the debate, even though 
everybody on the left says it's anti-immigrant. I think it's profoundly law and order. If people come here legally, we all, by and large, recognize somebody in our family tree in in their experience. And there isn't an anti-immigrant sentiment so much as a, a belief that people should not jump the line, cheat on the system, break the law to get here. And that is different. You would never know it from reading the New York Times. I will say that, Paul. So maybe you don't, you don't see it. But I talked to those folks and they are, they're happy to tell you that what they want is a legal system, not, a, not less immigration. Yeah, no, I, I think you're quite right. And I needed to be more careful in making that distinction. You know, I think I personally think one of the great things about America is the diversity of our cultures. Not everyone got to be a religious fanatic or a criminal running from authority back in the 17th and 18th century. And the people who come to America, I think, enrich us enormously. At the same time, I understand the offense of the way we let this happen outside the law. And when people are feeling economic pain and they connect that economic pain to the people who are coming in outside the law, even if it's not necessarily exactly true. I right. think that but I but it's true it. enough, right? If you were some of the best blue collar jobs and some of the best blue collar jobs I had when I was growing up are in construction. Yeah. No, their jobs yeah. where English doesn't have to be your first language. In fact, better not be. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, the folks who used to do that, who take justified pride in their ability to work with construction materials, increasingly, you know, outside of Home Depot, there are people who just are standing around and you drive up a truck and you can get them to work for cash on your construction project. And if you're a carpenter who's been working for 20 years and was brought up here, that is a staggering fall in both self-respect and the income you're going to bring in for your family. No, I agree. So that's a big part of why there's a reaction. What are people, they've defined themselves as they're not elite. And frankly, that's where I am too. Actually, I I would say I'm a class trader. Um, (laughs) So what do they want? Is there a an agenda other than no? I think as disorganized and dispersed a movement as this, it's there are two problems in discerning a deeper agenda. First of all, there's no formal ideology, I think. Right. Secondly, our ways of understanding the world, forms of media and other you know, cultural products that educate us about others are really unsatisfactory about this because there's a, you know, a script that is being read, I think, that doesn't necessarily correspond. And so a lot of people are trying to figure it out. I think of one of my college classmates, Ray Teixeira, who used to believe that demography led to an inevitable democratic majority because of the assumption that, you know, new Americans would always be Democrats. And he's now come almost 180 degrees and is working at the American Enterprise Institute and is worried by how much out of touch the Democratic Party is with America's working class and immigrants who, who, you know, as as soon as people have forget about buying their first home, as soon as they have a a year-long lease, they're in a position to worry about stability and law and order and are concerned about people who care for that. I don't think stability is really a good program, particularly when we are faced with a knowledge economy that thrives on change. So I think 
the, the person who manages to square that circle of allow innovation to proceed apace, but can promise people who want things to slow down and a little more security at the cost of some prosperity, you know, if that circle can be squared, that person will have a brilliant political career. So don't you think that we're in the process of squaring that by wiping out 30 years of trade law progress, if you can call it that? The economy that we're hoping to build is one that has a big state role in it, whether it's designed to ensure that electric vehicles and clean energy succeed, or that we become self-sufficient in chips and medical drug precursors, that is inevitably going to slow down change because it's going to politicize economic change. And that always slows down economic change. Don't you think we're going to see some of that? We will, but how that's going to play out is... A mystery to me. I mean, we are going through a period of friendshoring and onshoring and capital controls, but what that's going to look like 10 years from now is hard to see because I, I think a lot of it turns with how we negotiate our relationship with China. And, you know, I don't think a Cold War is really feasible, not as long as they're buying most of our T bills. And are they still? I wasn't sure. Well, they I think were. it's down from the peak of before 2008, but I still think they're the single largest stakeholder. That could be, yeah. although I think they are going to start to have to worry about who's buying their debt. I think that was a 90s thing, and yeah. I, my guess is we're getting away from that. I think they're I, still I, exposed to dollar risk more than any yes. other country in the world. Fair enough. Okay. One thing that I think you can say, as you sort of already have said, is that if you're a populist, if you think that the, the if you're skeptical about the meritocracy, you're inclined to believe that most of the institutions which are run by the meritocracy are scams designed to extract rent from the non-meritocrats. And so when one of those institutions tells you something that you don't want to hear, there's an inclination to tear the institution down. And I think the WHO and CDC discovered that in brutal fashion during COVID. But the EU, frankly, to my mind, has been running this scam for 40 years. That Every time something goes wrong, they, they say the answer is more Europe and, and more very wealthy, well, not wealthy, but very comfortable bureaucrats regulating half-heartedly on the issue du jour. And my sense is, they keep telling us they're doing something on the problem we care about. And the problem we cared about 15 years ago has sort of been dropped into the, the wastebasket because they don't have time to do all of it. Well, I would say two of the people, both very good friends who I admire a lot, who've pushed back against me in my book promotion efforts at panels and the like, are both legal academics from Europe, one Greek, the other Dutch, currently working in Germany, and they say, no, no, EU is doing great. You know, Putin has brought us all together, and there's some truth to that. They've really challenged me on my assessment, which is that the EU is at great risk. I'll be more surprised if 10 years from now the EU exists with the kind of sway and authority it has than not. I, I don't think it'll disappear, but I think we're going to see an EU with its wings clipped, much as has already has happened to the WTO in the last five or six years. So I may be wrong about this, but I see more things going against the EU than for them. 
And I think the scam, as you call it, I wouldn't use such salty language, but I, I agree with the thought. You know, I think there will be a reckoning. Yeah. And that will be at the hands of populists whose agenda you could characterize as negative, but we're just not going to do this anymore. And we like the way the rules were made before. And the reason it works in Europe is that you can say, we are a nation and we like being a nation. And we think that we should solve our problems with national interest in mind. And and then that obviously leads to the immigration fight where people who think they are a nation already, a good Catholic nation that resisted the the Russian invasion and Hitler's invasion too here in Poland, they start to think, well, you know, when you tell me I have to take all these people who have none of that in their history, you're trying to undermine the things that I am most patriotic about. And so I remember having dinner with somebody who was a, a high up in the European Commission who said to me, this was in the late 90s, when I started talking about Eastern Europe, He said, you know, those Eastern European members, they're the first members that weren't grateful to join the European Union. As though, you know, that is what he expected and what was only the European Union's due. And the lack of gratitude from Eastern Europe is part of the problem that the EU has. And it comes from this sense that its supranationalism is exactly what's wrong with it. Yeah, so my prediction is long-term that meritocratic winners will be migrating out of Europe. And as that, I mean, Russia's already gotten a big lead on that by driving anyone with any talent under the age of 30 out of the country. But but I think in a much less dramatic way, that's going to be happening with Europe. And that will be to the benefit of the UK, the United States, Canada, Australia, you know, and maybe even some benefits to places like India and China as well. So I want to talk about, we haven't talked much about China, and we should, because I'm not sure it fits the the knowledge economy construct that you've demonstrated. For sure, at the international level, it's very clear that there's a big reaction in China against the whole idea of liberal democratic international law. And at bottom, it looks to me as though they're just a much more realist 19th century national interest country. And they think this is all just hogwash and hogwash designed to prevent them from rising to their proper place in the world. I don't know if that's populist, except at a very international level. But how does China fit into the world that you think has been built by the knowledge economy? So one possibility is that the 21st century will be the Chinese century, that perhaps they have the right mix of extracting the value added from the technology while keeping social controls sufficiently rigorous to prevent serious challenges. So that I think the seeds of national populism are very strong in China, but they do a lot to keep people from getting out of line. I'm not at all clear that's a long-term winning strategy but I could be wrong. My skepticism about China is really more on the top than the bottom. That is to say, particularly in the last 10 years with President Xi, they have gotten rid of feedback loops that serve as a check on leaders. And China, unfortunately, in the last 70 years has had a history of unchecked and extremely erratic and harmful decisions by top leaders. I mean, Xi is no Mao. 
mean to suggest that, but you know, he's made some pretty erratic decisions, and the, his great confidence, for example, that China will you know master the technology of the coming world simply by mandate, plus having a lot of people getting advanced engineering training in the West. I'm not sure that's enough to pull it off. So I don't think the 21st century will be China's century. So it's a country that responds well to meritocracy as an ideology, I think. You know, they've had standardized exams for a couple thousand years, I think, to join the bureaucracy. So it has elements of meritocracy that will resonate with the knowledge economy. It's going to have people who want to be part of a knowledge economy, a Chinese knowledge economy, and that's bound to be a strong suit. There is a difficulty that, you know, the knowledge economy, if you're, if I'm right, that FOMO is a big part of the knowledge economy, people are going to be constantly trying to catch up with the latest ideology, which will make them more inclined to follow the government's line until it gets really, you know, out of whack with reality. Yeah, the other hurdle they have to navigate, I think, is you've got these hundreds of millions of people who've been lifted out of extreme poverty, and that is is great, but, but there's, there, there's no room for them. Yeah, the what happens economy. next to yeah. them? And I mean, I describe in my book what it looks like in Shenzhen, where I teach every other year, or did before COVID, where you have my students who have great opportunities and they're cheek by jowl in the convenience store with the people who are living in barracks or tents as they're building all the buildings that are going up around the school where I teach. And, you know, they see each other and they see how different their lives are. Yeah, that's right. And those people are glad to be earning that until they realize the futures of the people that they're in line at the grocery store with. Yeah, yeah. And when their kids who they left back home with their grandparents in the rural interior, when they start hitting ceilings, you know, that's, I think, when the proverbial rubber will hit the proverbial road. Okay. Why don't we go on to talk about a few of the battlegrounds? We've talked about a lot of this, but you suggest that a lot of institutions had a moment and then have lost it. I thought your discussion of the UN was particularly, you know, kind of sad for people who believed in the United Nations, both of them. For a moment, the UN really seemed and the Security Council really seemed to be saying, we're going to intervene here, we're not going to intervene there. There was a genuine debate and and by and large, what the US wanted to do, it got to do, which of course is exactly the problem. In the end, everybody said, well, this is just the US taking over the UN, using it for its own purposes. Libya is was the final straw. We're never going to go back to that, are we? Well, I would never say never, but I cannot envision circumstances based on what the world is now where we would do that. Yeah. We may decide... 2011 was the, the high point of this whole knowledge economy and the uh, ideology of the 90s transforms the world, that, that after that, it's all been downhill. Okay. I think we've talked about immigration. Oh, international investment. There was an enormous boom in bilateral investment treaties in the 90s. Kind of a surprise. It was sort of a workaround because at the multinational level, there was a lot of ideological opposition to guaranteeing people against expropriation by governments. But country by country, bit by bit, everybody got on board giving investors special rights to arbitrate if they felt that their investment had been unfairly disadvantaged after they'd made it. 
Yeah, so this regime is very interesting. I mean, it affects me directly because I've been involved in a number of these investor arbitral proceedings. It's certainly been great for people in our industry, A. B, I think it probably had some benefits in lowering the cost of capital to developing countries. Interestingly, we don't have data about that. We just have data about flows, but we don't have data about the price of flows, which I think is more informative. But it certainly has been the target of populist backlash in a number of not just developing countries, but of course, it's become a commitment of the rich world left as well, starting in Australia, where the labor government, when it came to power after Howard, stopped all future bilateral investment treaties. And that is popular in a segment of American politics. It's something that unites Pat Buchanan and Elizabeth Warren. And I actually just don't think there's a future for that. And I think there is a cheaper, better way of achieving the same result. But it's not good news for lawyers because one of the reasons why the better way is cheaper is because there'd be lower returns to legal services. Yeah, my law firm does a lot of this work. I've done some of this work. I cut my teeth arbitrating against Iran after they expropriated a bunch of my clients after the Islamic Revolution. So yes, it's been a, it certainly put my kids through elementary school. And it's astonishing. Even Russia signed up to a bunch of bilateral investment treaties. To my benefit, Stuart. Yes, that's right. I Mine too. I have a client who's got a, a claim today against Russia, which finally got around to expropriating them. So it was an enormous success, but the idea that Russia would actually honor an agreement to arbitrate with a Western company when they think they've been expropriated all over the West and they're only giving the West a taste of its own medicine, they're they're just never going to arbitrate those issues. Yeah, the optimism was too great. And I think People had in mind a something we might even call neo-colonial mindset, you know, that weak companies will have to give way because they would be ostracized and punished by international capital if they didn't go along. But countries like Russia, China, Brazil, India, South Africa don't have to play that game, and they're increasingly showing that they're not interested in playing that game. All right, so let's stop for a second and then and turn to the future. You've painted a picture, and I've been complicit, of a world in which the knowledge economy has dissolved a lot of borders and institutions in the interest of making sure everybody can talk to everybody and nobody misses out, nobody smart enough misses out, that there's a meritocracy that can run things, but that has really produced a new social division that is not yet as bad as the division between labor and capital in the 1800s and 1900s, but getting there. And it may only lack its marks to to explain why the people who are on the losing end of the meritocracy really should rise up for us to have a genuine civil dispute over that. So that's that's bad. We're not going to give up the benefits of the knowledge economy. It's a wonderful thing. And, you know, those of us who inhabit it are particularly enamored of it. So does that probably spells, as you suggest, an end to relying on institutional international law? That is to say, international rules that are made and enforced by supranational organizations. We have 
China that is determined to, in particular, to overturn a lot of that. Where does this, you know, what's the good news? Is there any good news? Is there a way to end up in a place that we're comfortable with despite the disadvantages of what the knowledge economy has brought both internationally and inside our society? Well, my final chapter is more procedural than it is substantive. And, you know, as a academic hack, I don't have a inspiring political vision that I can sell anyone, not even in my own family. And if I had a pet, not even a pet. Uh, but <laughs> what I do think is promising is giving countries that can serve as models in coming up with solutions to particular problems, the leeway to pursue those solutions. And if they turn out to be valuable and not obviously rent-seeking, that let them propagate. And then the examples I use in the past are the, the U.S. initiatives on anti-cartel regulation. I mean, we were mm -hmm. all out on our own until the 19, late 1980s anti-corruption, really anti-bribery rules. Again, we were all out on our own until the end of the 90s and still don't have a lot of people walking in our paths, but they're not. no one's obstructing our program. Financial regulation, I think that legal structures for confronting climate change issues are going down this path. I mean, you know, from the book, the Paris Agreement is based on letting each country set its own targets, but having international transparency as to what those targets are and what measures are being taken to meet them. And I think things like that are likely to be pursued in a way that tries to manage the conflicts we have, manage things like China, manage things like Russia's revisionism. And, you know, if we don't blow ourselves up in the course of these conflicts, I think there's some possibility. There's enough at stake. There's enough value added at stake and enough perhaps political pressure to do something about enriching the lives of the people who are not the winners of the knowledge economy. But we can do that only if we can make these things work. So that, in many ways, that makes sense to me as well. It's kind of a, an international coalition of the willing. That is to say, you may never get everybody on board, and you may be able to live with that. We may end up with a, a bipolar world again, in which there are folks who are willing, who, who may not be military allies, but who at the end of the day are buying the basic ideological commitments of the West and the knowledge economy and willing to work together as long as the U.S. in particular does not seem to be just squeezing it for unilateral advantage. And I agree with you. I would look at to the Financial Action Task Force as another very successful and very ad hoc effort to build an international coalition. Now, look, there's an element of, of coercion in that, as there probably is in all of the others as well. It, at some point, if you're not in the club, people start to look at you sideways. Countries start to look at you sideways. And so a Caribbean country may prefer not to join an anti-money laundering agreement, but they know that sooner or later their institutions are going to get hammered in anti-money laundering investigations, and they're better off being on the, the side of the enforcers than trying to run with the, the fox. So I do think that will happen some. I'm guessing it, it will never be as 
intellectually satisfying as saying, no, we have one World Trade Organization, but that was always an illusion. And so we can probably get a long way. I noticed we just had a story that I didn't cover in which the Ukraine, Ireland, Iceland, and Japan officially joined NATO's Cyber Defense Center. Ukraine is not a member of NATO, and yet it's working with NATO. Maybe that's obvious, but Ireland has insisted on its neutrality for years, right? They didn't fight in World War II. And Japan is a long way from NATO and probably doesn't want to be in NATO, but they're all willing to work on cyber defense together in NATO. And that is, again, a kind of ad hoc agreement to cooperate internationally on cybersecurity in ways that will lead to a whole bunch of relatively informal solutions. In 1942, Um, all four of those countries are on the wrong side, or if not actively, only because they were being repressed, like Iceland. That's interesting. I thought, I I mean, Denmark was by force on the wrong side, but Iceland... We had an armed base there. We did. They hated us for it. Oh, interesting. So I, I always thought that we basically created the Iceland independence movement and got it to succeed as part of our decolonization ideology and that the, that Icelanders would be grateful for that, but not the case. Huh? I don't think so. Okay. Interesting. I've only visited briefly. Yeah. All right. So that doesn't prevent bitter international conflict and probably, in fact, it will probably organize it. The more China says my way or the highway, the more people are going to say, well, you know, at least the U.S., knows something about how to treat allies. I mean, one of our great advantages here is uh, China has just no clue how to treat allies, right? They're either subordinates or they're wary outsiders. And we aren't great at it, but we're better than that. And so we can organize some informal and very transactional, unfortunately for us, international alignments And so that produces a certain amount of international law, or at least international agreement, and a certain amount of international stability. What's your view about how domestic politics plays out in a world where not everybody can be part of the knowledge economy, and a lot of people are going to affirmatively ideologically reject it? Yeah. I mean, I look at this current state of American politics with nothing but dismay, and you know i've been adamant my entire career about not identifying with either team blue or team red and i've worked in administrations on both sides at the moment i'm disturbed about the prospects for both major parties but i kind of have a maybe unjustified sense of optimism that somehow things always work out for us whether we deserve to have them do or not i still think there's enough resiliency and openness in our society to meet the challenges that we're facing, although how exactly we'll meet them is hard to say. I mean, I think the 60s were worse, quite honestly. I mean, people were getting killed politically in the 60s at a rate that they aren't getting killed now. I mean, and to me, getting killed is a big marker of of a problem. (laughs) It will. You said once that you were actually a new left radical, and who wasn't? I was not a new lefter, but I was definitely a hippie, lived in a commune for a while. I thought the new left guys were uptight and overly authoritarian, but you were on that side, both of us kind of not part of the American consensus at the time. I was Black Panther adjacent. 
And, okay. And, you know, and a part of the reason why I became a Soviet expert is because I felt I, you know, I had to invest in learning what the other side was thinking, given that I thought the United States was on the wrong side of history. All right. So, so it may be that that all the people that are causing the the trouble and the disaffection and the the woke mobs, if they aren't already in law school, they're going to go to law school and they're going to end up making a bundle as part of the meritocracy, and they'll make their peace with it, and they'll just keep sending you know five hundred dollars a year to BLM. I think the one thing we can bet on, Stuart, is they're all coming for our jobs. <laughs> well, and you know, I would be glad to have them take over this podcast if they'd like and and all of the income that comes with it. <laughs> okay, Paul, this was a terrific interview. I would love to keep talking, but I, I think we've run out of audience patience. Uh, the book is The World Crisis and International Law, and it is so much more than international law, but it is a very sophisticated discussion of international law and the knowledge economy and the battle for the future. Paul, it would be Great to come back in 40 years and see how the next 40 years have played out. I'm, you know, I'm going to keep exercising every day in the hopes that I can do that and uh, maybe write a sequel to your book or read yours. Thanks so much for coming on. Any last thoughts about things that you should have said, wanted to say that you didn't get to say already? We've talked a lot, Stuart. I'm very grateful to you for the opportunity. I've known you for 45 years now, I think, and I just admire you immensely and grateful to be heard. It has been a delight. I too have followed your career and kept saying to myself, well, should I be doing that too? <laughs> so many thanks. Okay. Thanks to Jeffrey and to Richard for joining us on that. Thanks also to Paul Stephen for a terrific interview. For our audience, if you know somebody who wants to work for the podcast doing both substantive and sound engineering, we're in the market. Send a CV or bio to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send comments, questions, feedback there. But if you want it to be read on the air, the best place to leave it is as a comment in your review on iTunes or wherever, because we enjoy reading at least the most entertaining of those, even when they're abusive on the air. So looking forward to seeing those. This has been episode 459 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. AI should be valid, reliable, safe, secure, resilient, accountable, transparent, explainable, interpretable, and, you know, I should have a private plane.